previously on the hour. Hi, Vice President Biden. My name is Navid. Hi. I am from San Mateo, California, and thank you so much for allowing me to participate in this town hall with you. I'm thank you thinking about that. She describes Trump's penis as, quote, smaller than average, but, quote, not freakishly small. The blind monks in the catacombs guard the stone. Please be discreet and don't bother the other monks. What can this peaceful monk do for you, stranger? It's a little hard on your social life. Makes traveling quite difficult. Dull as hell. I lay there annoyed that I was getting effed by a guy with a Yeti with Yeti pubes and a dick like the mushroom character in Mario Kart. You are making Republican talking points right now in this room. People of Earth, how are you? Broadcasting live to tape from the dirtiest city in the world, outside of Italy, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. What are you thinking about when that buzzer's on for that line? What do you think about when the 15th round you're coming out? You're listening to the podcast of a world gone mad, the society show. You know, we're living in a society. On today's episode... An American private military company attempted a raid against Venezuela with Venezuelan dissidents and ex-military who live in Colombia. Venezuela is the kind of place you should go to war with because they have lots of oil and we'll take that. The raid failed immediately with eight dissidents killed and 17 people captured, including two American mercenaries. You're a waste. You're a waste. In Kabul, Afghanistan, 24 people were killed by gunmen in a maternity ward, including babies and pregnant women in a primarily Shia district. Around the same time, a suicide bomber attacked a funeral in Nangarhar, Afghanistan, killing 40 others. Both of the attacks were claimed by ISIS. Your campaign of terror, murder, mayhem will not be tolerated any longer. We'll also give a report on the ongoing Libyan civil war. Last week I claimed that the civil war may be coming to a close as the government of National Accord made grounds on territory claimed by the warlord Khalifa Haftar. However, after that happened, the countries that support Haftar like the UAE and Egypt began amping up their support which actually turned the war into maybe the hottest it's been um, in years. So we're going to go over what happened there. He said the international forces are resorting to terroristic means, but the victory will belong to those who hold the Libyan territory. And we also have a story about a militia in northeastern Congo that was at first offering concessions to the government to stop attacking people, but then a week or so later, the same group killed at least 20 villagers. So we're gonna look into why that happened, 
what groups are at play there because it's a lot more complicated than that makes it seem. Clap if you understand what I'm saying. All of that and much, much more. This is The Society Show. Society. But first. But first, but first, but first, but first, but first, but first. Here's the Facts and Logic Report. Facts don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings. These are facts. Construction of a major gas pipeline from Norway to Poland is set to begin soon, reducing Poland's reliance on Russian gas. My dad says butane's a bastard gas. At a remote mountainous border crossing in Tibet, Chinese and Indian forces engaged with each other, resulting in four Indian soldiers and seven Chinese soldiers being injured. I hope they don't shoot the cannon in my butt. Poo all over the place. Singapore deployed a dog robot to encourage social distancing at public spaces in Singapore. Does your computer ever seem to have a mind of its own? Tim Hortons is getting help from the Chinese social media and video game conglomerate Tencent in order to expand the Canadian donut chain into Chinese markets. Tim Hortons opened their first China store in February 2019. They currently have 50 locations and have a goal of 1,500 locations. Because if there's a Canadian... There has to be a Tim's. When I was in college, I studied abroad in South Korea, and I imagine the coffee situation there is similar to how it is in China and Japan, a lot of Asia really, but the coffee shop culture there that uh, in East Asia that Tim Hortons is trying to integrate itself into is very crucial and it's a lot different than it is in the US. Again, I'm only speaking for South Korea because that's what I know, but uh, from what I've read and what I understand, it's kind of the same in a lot of uh, East Asian countries, but... Today, Junior! <laughs> the way they handle coffee there is so say you're in a, a, a district a neighborhood around a university there will be dozens of coffee shops it's like a little area that is just uh, full of them and it's not like in the US where a coffee shop is like say you go to your neighborhood coffee shop it might have 12 12 to 20 seats if it's big if you live in a city like new york it may have like eight seats six seats and you can't really hang out there in south korea coffee shops will be like multiple floors tall you'll go into a starbucks and it, you order on the first floor and then the next like three floors up are all seating when I was there, you could usually one of the floors would be dedicated to smoking, but shortly after I left, they really cracked down on smoking laws in South Korea. So, I mean, that's just kind of a side anecdote, but I do think it's interesting that Tim Hortons is trying to integrate themselves into that. Another element about that is there will be coffee chains from 
everywhere. Like, for example, the first time I had Dunkin' Donuts, aside when I was a kid, they had some Dunkin' Donuts around Washington, but there weren't many. Um, I grew up in Washington State. It wasn't common at all, and they all eventually got closed. So the first time I had Dunkin' Donuts as an adult was actually in South Korea. I didn't have any after the age of, like, 12 growing up, because there were none around. Now that the show's recorded in Philadelphia, where I live, um, I can actually have Dunkin' Donuts all the time. It's really hard with quarantine, because they have limited hours, but you get the idea. An Iranian warship was hit by a missile in a training accident, killing 19 sailors. Can I do that? Navajo Nation reported more coronavirus cases per capita than any U.S. state. Within the Navajo Nation, there are roughly... 1,786 cases of coronavirus per 100,000 people. In contrast, New York reported coronavirus cases came out to be 1,751 cases per 100,000 people, meaning that there's more people per capita with coronavirus in, in the Navajo Nation than in New York, which has been considered the epicenter. Welcome to this shows the systematic structural ability of the United States government to repress the the indigenous communities. They don't need to do anything to make Navajo people have the most amount of cases. The way our society is designed from top to bottom allows that to happen. Yes, we So it's not like there's some grand conspiracy or plot to infect Navajo people. They don't need a conspiracy to do that. They've already structurally embedded the ability to do that in the way the United States works. Saudi Arabia is tripling its taxes on basic goods raising them to 15 percent and cutting spending on major projects by around 26 billion dollars this austerity gesture is unique to saudi arabia it's not very common for saudi arabia to use very British, I guess, very European conservative methods of austerity. What do you want, Breton trash? And it's part of Saudi Arabia's effort to deal with coronavirus and also to deal with the low oil prices that they actually created themselves. So what what happened with the oil market is the Saudi Arabia flooded the market with their super cheap oil in order to make more money. It's all about the money. It's all about the dum dum da da dum dum. I don't think it's funny. Everyone would buy their oil. 
then other countries would also have to lower their prices to compete with Saudi oil. And Russia was not okay with that, so Russia started making more oil um, uh, to kind of like counteract whatever Saudi Arabia was doing. So in other words, the reason they're increasing the taxes is because of a trade, like, total trade issue that Saudi Arabia caused themselves. It's, and then they're passing that off on a tripling of taxes to common people. That is insane. The people, the common people of Saudi Arabia are paying for Saudi Arabia trying to price gouge the world. They almost seem to make up laws just for charging fines. The EU had a teleconference to raise $8 billion for coronavirus vaccine research from around the world. However, the U.S. government refused to participate and Trump administration officials said they were working on their own vaccine research. That's okay, we're just going to tariff your nation. We're going to tariff you. Either you're going to agree or not. Presumably, they're doing this so they can profit off of it before a free option is made available. The U.S., more than any other country, is fueled purely by money. All countries are because capitalism is their primary mode of production. But in the U.S., you can't even imagine an incentive besides money. You can't think about doing something for the greater good of humanity. You can't think of holding any other paradigm to measure success. It's all money. And the reason the U.S. is doing this is because they want to turn the vaccine into something they can profit off of. Which is just absolutely sick. It's actually sick. And when the U.S. accuses uh, countries like China of potentially trying to, like get the vaccine first or to steal information from the U.S. to make a vaccine, what they're really saying is these people don't want to profit off of it, and we do, so we have to make sure we get it first so we can profit off of it. It's all about the money. Donald Trump's choice for the Director of National Intelligence, John Ratcliffe, follows several QAnon accounts on Twitter. Even before this was known, Oregon Senator Ron Wyden said, quote, Congressman Ratcliffe is a partisan politician who spent the last two years promoting conspiracy theories in defense of Donald Trump, end quote. The Twitter accounts John Ratcliffe follows are strange, not only because they're QAnon and conspiracy accounts, but they're all really small and obscure. Like, he active, it seems like he's really into it, and he really picks and chooses which accounts he follows. It's not like he just happens to follow the biggest QAnon account and didn't really know much about it. He, he really digs in there. You're getting that ass, Larry. You know what I mean? You getting that ass, Larry. That's what the fuck you do. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Victor Orban posted a map of Greater Hungary, which portrayed the much larger borders of the Kingdom of Hungary in World War One. Last week, the Romanian Senate rejected a draft law 
that would grant autonomy to certain parts of Transylvania where ethnic Hungarians live. President Klaus Iannis accused opposition Social Democratic leader Marcel Cialicu, I, th- I hope I'm saying that right, I have trouble with Romanian names, but he accused Marcel Cialicu of colluding with Orban, quote, to give Transylvania to the Hungarians. Not anymore! Give me that spatula! Security guards ejected several, quote, pro-democracy lawmakers in Hong Kong after fights broke out. One of the legislators was carried out on a stretcher by medics. It started when pro-Beijing lawmaker Starry Lee inserted herself as chair of a committee meeting in order to end a months-long impasse that resulted in a backlog of legislation. You the think that voted Monday to keep it legal Who would do that? Who would do that? that? Pro-Beijing lawmakers accused the deputy chair of the House committee, committee Dennis Kwok, of st- stalling by blocking the selection of a new chair for more than six months. China publicly rebuked Kwok last week for holding up matters that affect public interests, sparking protests that, again, China was meddling in Hong Kong's internal affairs. And it feels like you don't care anymore. Two former North Korean officials who defected to South Korea and later become elected officials apologized for erroneously claiming that Kim Jong-un was either dead or near death. Their statements were made, to quote from The Guardian, quote, days before he emerged on state media, smoking and walking briskly, end quote, at the opening of a new manure factory. Shortly after his reappearance, gunfire gunfire from North Korean soldiers crossed the demilitarized zone, but South Korea believes it to be accidental. Attention all libtards. Farted and I had an accident in my pants. South Korea's most prominent nightclub district, the Itaewon neighborhood in Seoul, is the epicenter of a new round of coronavirus cases. Three days after South Korea started relaxing social distancing measures, the mayor of Seoul ordered the shutdown of more than 2,100 bars and nightclubs. More than 50 cases have been linked to one single 29-year-old man who visited five nightclubs in the area. The local news media in South Korea has emphasized the fact that the 29-year-old was is gay and was visiting gay clubs. This has caused a homophobic backlash regarding coronavirus in South Korea. My bum is on the cheese! Bum is on the cheese! If I get lucky, I'll get a disease! Bangladesh is still under coronavirus lockdowns, but garment factories have reopened. The garment industry in Bangladesh supplies some of the biggest clothing brands and are 84% of the country's total exports. 
the factories are only supposed to reopen if they use social distancing, face masks, general hygiene, etc. What you'd expect. But many factory workers are saying the only measure was hand wash stations in the entrance. There's still the same level of crowding in the factories and the buses that bring them there are super crowded. Some workers reported people appearing visibly sick at work while management insisted they were okay. While there is still less than 10,000 cases and only 187 deaths in Bangladesh from coronavirus, they also have some of the lowest testing rates of any country, so it could obviously be potentially much, much higher than that. I think this story is a good opportunity to reflect on the invisible third world working class that's exploited the most but is not seen. Their label labor enables America and the Western world to function. The evil doings of the United States. 84% of the country's total exports go to clothes, and those clothes are primarily worn by Westerner, Westerners, or at least they're supplied to Western company, Western-based companies. And... I think it's really important to realize that although there's labor issues like this going on in the U.S., especially with Amazon, where they take little precaution for their workers, people are getting sick and dying in Amazon factories, we should keep in mind that this type of thing happens all over the world, and in some countries it's just absolutely barbaric totally just unconscionable working conditions and i think any type of leftist political view needs to keep this in mind that's not to say i'm a full-blown you know maoist third worldist where basically maoist third worldists believe that the true class division in a globalized colonial world is between the first world developed nations and the third world non-developed nations. And what needs to happen is for the third world to unite to overthrow the first world. Um, And they believe that because they believe that is the primary class, class schism that conflict revolves around. And in a way, I definitely think that's true. We need third world labor to enable first world lifestyles. And we don't think about that because we don't see the laborers. But at the same time, it is obviously much more complex than that. For example, there are plenty of people in places like Bangladesh who personally profit off of the clothes continue to be made. Do you think Bangladeshi politicians don't benefit from the clothing industry, which makes up 84% of their exports working, even though it's really dangerous, uh, really dangerous health position to put them in? Of course they benefit from it, or else they wouldn't try to do it. This is actually law. The people working in the factory aren't being forced to against law. 
they are incentivized to do it by the Bangladeshi government. The point being, there's a lot of complicated stuff here, but it, at the same time, you really ought to keep in mind that this type of stuff is happening. Happens more than I'd like to admit. As inflation grows in Iran due to American sanctions, the Iranian government will switch currencies from the real to a new currency called the Toman. One Toman will be the equivalent of 10,000 reals. An interesting fact about that is, Toman was also the name of the currency started in 1256 during the Ilkhanate, the part of the Mongol Empire that included Iran, Azerbaijan, most of Turkey, and more. That's history right there, you understand? In South Syria, nine police officers were abducted and killed. The killings occurred in a town called Muzaireb in Dara province. Dara province is near the Jordan border and was heavily involved in the Syrian civil war, especially the civil uprising phase. In 2011, people protested the arrests of anti-Assad vandals there, as well as other social complaints. In 2012, the Syrian army engaged with the Free Syrian Army there. The past eight years, there's been protracted warfare in the area. In 2019, the Syrian army clashed with the Free Syrian Army again, which was by then functioning as a militia for Turkish interests. And now, in 2020, more Free Syrian Army rebels are cl clashing with the Syrian army in Dara again. On the opposite side of the country. As far as I know, George, first-degree murder is illegal in every country in the world. These nine police officers being abducted and killed is very likely part of the clashes happening in the area. In the two months since Palestine went under COVID-19 lockdown, Activists and rights groups have recorded a huge increase in Israeli settler attacks on Palestinians and their property. In an April report, Israeli human rights group B'Tselem recorded 23 settler attacks against Palestinians in the first three weeks of April and 23 attacks during March. In contrast, there were 12 report, reported attacks in February and 11 in January. Bitsalem said the attacks have been physical, involving the torching of Palestinian cars, theft of livestock, and destruction of trees. May Allah awaken the people and help them to see the evil doings of Israel and the United States. In April 2019, the 20-year presidency of Omar al-Bashir came to an end from a coup d'etat. Last chance to use the power of coup d'etat. Omar al-Bashir was the president of Sudan, by the way. He originally gained power in a military coup in 1989, so yeah, that's 20 years exactly. And he was similarly deposed in a military coup in response to mass protest movements against him. 
Once Bashir was overthrown, protests continued because the military refused to give up power. So think about the way power has changed hand in Sudan since 1989. Omar al-Bashir overthrew the government with the military. 20 years later, the government was overthrown by the military. The military did not want to give up power, so protests continued. So that was back in 2019. So let's see what happened since then. By August 2019, the military dictatorship responding to the continuing protests gave power to the 11-member Sovereignty Council which will oversee the government transition and will retain power until November 2022. So it's basically a council of 11 people who were given power by the military, said you have power for the next two years, figure out what to do until then and how we're going to hold elections. Just do it! But the really interesting thing about that is five of the 11 council members are themselves military members. In fact, I don't have his name here, but the the general of the Sudanese military is the head of the Sovereignty Council. Um, This story kind of bubbled up in American news a little bit, although it's not the type of American news that Americans follow because it doesn't have to do with um, Russia interfering with our elections or uh, how there's a Cheeto in the White House. But um, Sudan appointed its first ambassador to the U.S. in more than 20 years, which coincides with... Omar al-Bashir's presidency, obviously. So what we can gather from that is al-Bashir probably is not a super f- fond of U.S. type of guy. Death to America. In April, so now we're fast-forwarding a bit. In April of this year, supporters of Omar al-Bashir infiltrated the square in front of the army headquarters in Khartoum, the capital of Sudan. The rally called for the army to intervene and remove the civilian government again. This was the first time the protesters had reached the army's central command area since the June before, when a sit-in protest was bloodily dispersed. Some people believe that the factions that factions in the army may repeat the overthrow of Bashir. However, the military, although not a majority, is still the largest voting bloc, protecting their specific interests. So, although this is an interesting story, this is also kind of where my comprehension of it fades a little bit. Because, like I said, the Sovereignty Council is five, f- has five members of the military out of 11 people. Now, obviously, that's not a majority, but at the same time, the other people who make the council, it's like, well, they got one guy who's, who's like a bath, like, you know, the bath party, who the pan-Arab socialists or whatever. They got like one or two other guys with other interests, blah, blah, blah. 
by far the largest voting block in the Sovereignty Council is the military. So, I'm a little confused why there's pressure for another military coup when that is the truth of the matter. So, uh, I'll keep an eye on that because that, this kind of cycle of, it seems almost like, the the cycle of military coups in Sudan has been almost replicated so much that it's systemized. It's part of the structure of their state, and they know that something's wrong, but they also feel like that's the only way to do something about it. I can see that being true. It is an interesting story, and I'll keep my eyes on that for future episodes. The Ethiopian government is considering various options about what to do politically because the next general election is cancelled due to coronavirus. Center-right opposition groups have proposed forming a caretaker government of technocrats as a solution. Now this is interesting because this is not the first time I've read a news story from Africa and I think specifically Ethiopia, where there are people actively calling for technocratic government. And that's just crazy, because in the U.S., like, there's no way where technocrat is even used value neutrally. It is always a negative word. No one is positively a technocrat. In the U.S., technocrats call themselves something else, like a Warren, an Elizabeth Warren supporter. I've got time to do a little self-care. Or a Pete Buttigieg supporter. They don't say technocrat. Um, but at the same time... Honestly, the U.S. is moving closer and closer to what the Ethiopian opposition is actively advocating for, which is appointing technocrats to positions of power. We just use elections to disguise and cover all, all the appointments we make up. We, we don't bring it up as an actual mode of possibility, like appointing technocrats. But at the same time, that is what the U.S. government does. So in that sense, I totally respect Ethiopia for just being like, you know what, Let's we're skipping the election, let's just appoint a care, caretaker government of technocrats. Why not? We're not? We're not voting, so why not? In the U.S., they would do functionally the same thing or the same type of things they would just disguise it all under these fake electoral terms and like oh you vote for this guy so yeah you voted for him but then he appoints like 50 people who have more power than him and who actually do everything it's just interesting to see that difference in how in a lot of ways the U.S. is if you've seen the documentary Hypernormalization by uh, Adam Curtis, the U.S. has become completely hypernormalized in the sense that Adam Curtis says that hypernormalization is when 
people, the, the government or the ideological state apparatuses create an alternate reality that's not particularly true, and people just believe it because the real reality sucks, and they just get, like, sucked into this uh, false consciousness that builds on itself, where people just believe things that are made up to reassure themselves. That's what the U.S. is like. Um, moving on to a story from Mozambique. An Islamist is insurgency is attempting to seize Mozambique. Ansar Al-Suna, an ISIS-affiliated group in the northwestern Mozambique province of Cabo Delgado, has escalated their insurgency on the majority Christian country. Ansar Al-Suna has also tried a new tactic where instead of raiding, killing, and looting villages overnight, they've now tried to raid villages more gracefully, spending the day occupying the village, conversing with locals, and making true, you know, true ideological and political gestures to the locals, which, while coincidingly, they're just escalating their, their, their siege, their advance so that combination of things could give them a lot of regional power i might come back with some special power and for the last story before i get into some bigger stories although i do have a lot to say about this as well a militia in northeastern congo was at first offering concessions to the government to stop attacking people but then, a week or so later, killed at least 20 villagers. The militia is associated with a small political party called the Coalition of Congolese Democrats, or CODECO. Last episode, I talked about a political cult in Congo called Bundu Dia Congo, and I wanted to follow up with another factional struggle going on in Congo. Causing confusion, disturbing the peace, not an illusion, we run in the streets. Uh. Bundu Dia Congo is located around the capital, which is in the far southwest corner of the country, Kinshasa. The Congo ethnicity is, you know, that's where they're from. They're around the west coast of Central Africa, on the Atlantic. Um, they don't really go into the interior that much, even though Congo as a country goes deep into the interior of Africa. So, meanwhile, th that's happening with them in southwestern Africa. But this story is in northeastern Congo. Kodeko is made up of what's called the Lendu ethnic group, and Lendus are most well known to geopolitics, probably because of their role in the Second Congo War. At least when I googled them, that's what most things about them came up about, so... Lindus are farmers, and historically farmers, and the Hema people who live in the same area are herders, so they've had this kind of agricultural versus uh, pastoral tension for a while, a long time. Uh, these groups were in armed conflict as part of 
the Congo Second Congo War. And although the war ended in 2003, there's really been low-level conflict between them ever since. A big part of their conflict is rooted in colonialism because the Belgian colonists saw the Hema people as more civilized and loyal than other nearby ethnic groups. Because of this, Hema people dominate local politics to this day. The leader of Kodeku, Kodeko and its militia, Nagabu Nagawi Olivier, said in a statement to Reuters, quote, We are a peaceful sect and war does not benefit us. We took up arms to protect ourselves against attacks by the army and other religious communities on our followers. But now I think it is no longer important to continue killing civilians or attacking the army, end quote. And I will say he brings up the religious aspect. I can't find much reporting on the religious background of the Lindu. It seems that many of them are perhaps technically Christian, but still practice a lot of elements of their local ethnic religion. Let's be clear, even though this guy who made the statement, Nagabu Nagawe Olivier, is the supposed leader of Kodeko offering to lay down their weapons in the beginning of May. A large raid of a Hema village happened by the middle of May. At least 20 villagers were killed. UN peacekeepers arrived and the attackers fled, but then later attacked a nearby UN base. So why was there a raid when Olivier offered the government a treaty? Well, the original leader of Kodeko named Jason Nagunjolo was killed in March. This caused the movement to splinter and at least some people do not recognize Olivier as leader and do not adhere to his declarations. In fact, seemingly nothing has changed since Olivier made that statement. Um, so who knows who is actually beholden to him? It's not clear. Facts don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings. These are facts. And that's the facts and logic report, even though normally I spend that time reading headlines. I, I went on a few detours, but uh, I do have some three, three other stories to get to um, that are a little more substantial. Hey, where's the thief? I just want to say that typically I have a segment at the end of the show called the state of the state, state of the state, where I give some type of analysis of political theory or any type of higher level, more abstract analysis. Today I'm not doing that because I just found too many stories I wanted to talk about on this show. So, uh, the first will be a Libyan civil war report. Give 
And maybe I'll make this a weekly segment or bi-weekly segment, monthly segment. I don't know, but I feel like I'm going to be talking about the Libyan Civil War more. So, last Tuesday, Turkey accused Greece, Cyprus, Egypt, France, and the United Arab Emirates of forming a, quote, alliance of evil. after they issued a joint declaration denouncing Turkey's policies in the Mediterranean and Libya. Turkish Foreign Ministry spokesman Hami Aksoy said the five countries were pursuing, quote, regional chaos and instability instability in the eastern Mediterranean and sacrificing Libyans, quote, hope for democracy for the reckless aggression of dictators. Greek and Cyprus are mainly raising the concern about Turkey because, since Turkey doesn't acknowledge Cyprus as an independent country, they have been attempting to drill in Cyprus's maritime zones. Egypt and UAE denounce Turkey because they want Khalifa Haftar to have power in Libya, while Turkey wants to keep the UN-recognized government of national accord in power. France is the most peculiar one, because France would prefer Haftar in power, because, according to Turkey at least, France would get more oil from Haftar, and I I mean, I totally believe that. It makes sense to me. However, the UN recognizes the GNA, the Government of National Accord, NATO ostensibly supports the GNA, and this makes France's intentions a lot harder to understand than Egypt or UAE. So, but let's take a step back. What led Turkey to boldly call these countries an alliance of evil? Last episode, I said that the Libya civil war may be coming closer to an end as the government and national accord gained ground on the warlord Haftar's claimed territory. Now that seems less true than ever as more countries try to both overtly and covertly support both factions in the civil war. The battle has primarily been focused on the... Well, it says the Al-Watiya, but I think Al means the, so, on Al-Watiya Air Base, which is one of the most important facilities in the war, and has been a focal point of it. The Air Base was seized by Haftar and was his primary base in western Libya, while most of his claimed territory is in eastern Libya. Haftar's April 2019 attack on Tripoli was launched from Al-Watiya Air Base. Um, just, so keep that in mind when I go over this timeline of what, what's happened in the last month, because it's kind of the crucial part of the story. So yeah, here's the timeline of last, the last month or so in the Libyan Civil War. In the middle of April, GNA forces seized two cities controlled by Haftar. That's cool. Okay. Meanwhile, the United Arab Emirates purchased an Israeli-made missile system for Haftar to counter drones that Turkey was giving the GNA. Two UAE-based companies shipped about 11,000 tons of jet fuel to eastern Libya, which was a major violation of the international arms embargo. 
Haftar's Eastern-based forces announced that they will cease fire for Ramadan, especially after losing ground. The GNA rejected the ceasefire because they were on a roll. So, on May 2nd, the GNA airstriked Al-Watiya Air Base, and the local government acknowledged them as the government. On the 4th and 5th of May, several towns in desertous southwestern Libya rebelled against Haftar. On May 7th, in Tripoli, as the dominoes were falling... The areas around the embassies of Turkey and Italy were shelled by, by Haftar's forces. Tripoli is the center of the GNA government, whereas Benghazi on the western part of the country was, is the center of Haftar's government. Turkey is the primary support, primary country supporting the GNA, as you probably gathered. But uh, so Haftar also he shelled the area around the embassy of Turkey and Italy for specific reasons, because Italy is also the only European country diplomatically supporting the GNA, independent of just general European Union support. So ostensibly the whole European Union supporting the GNA, but the thing with France, that's obviously not true, and Italy's the only one who's doing it independently of the EU. Um, when this shelling happened, Turkey warned that it, quote, will deem Haftar's forces legitimate targets, end quote, if Haftar continued. Haftar's forces also attacked Matiga Airport, which Turkey characterized as a war crime, along with shelling Tripoli. Stop! You violated the law! Now, um, now that Turkey is supplying the GNA with highly effective drones, supporters of Haftar, like UAE, Egypt, and Russia, feel the pressure to support more. Conversely, NATO has said they're increasingly, increasingly more likely to offer support to the GNA. The lower, I mean, all this really signals the war in Libya will likely continue to heat up. Latino heat. Um, and as I wrap up, you notice I said that you know Turkey is supplying GNA with drones, so. The supporters of Haftar, like UAE, Egypt, and Russia, are feeling the pressure to support him more. I want to draw attention to that because when Turkey condemned five countries of forming an alliance of evil, you may have noticed Russia wasn't one of those five countries I mentioned. Russia, Russia hates Russia, 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 Putin, Russia's Russia, 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 Russian, 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 Russian. But Russia is one of the biggest supporters of Haftar. I think there's some interesting stuff there. So I'm going to go into the broader geopolitical stuff with the Libyan civil war on the show soon. Like, why? there's just so many strange bedfellows in what government is being supported and why. For example, like, Turkey and Russia are on the opposite sides of a lot of geopolitical conflicts and yet they still work together like they just built a new gas pipeline between the countries they don't 
ever really particularly condemn the other country, but they're fighting opposite of each other all the time. Another example is the Syrian civil war. Turkey supports the Free Syrian Army in, like, groups of rebels, and Russia obviously supports Syria, so that'll be something I want to look into more, especially in the context of the Libyan Civil War. For the next story, in Kabul, Afghanistan, 24 people were killed by gunmen in a maternity ward, including babies and pregnant women, in a primarily Shia district. Around the same time, a suicide bomber attacked a funeral in Nangarhar, Afghanistan, killing 40 others. Both of these attacks were claimed by ISIS. However... The Afghanistan government says the hospital attack was done by the Taliban. The Taliban denies this and says it was, in fact, ISIS. How, so, but this gets even weirder, right? It's not like they're just blaming the Taliban because they want to. Some Afghanistan officials claim that ISIS doesn't even have a presence in Afghanistan, and any other terror group that may exist is simply a Taliban affiliate. First Vice President Amrullah Saleh, a prominent skeptic of the theory that an ISIS affiliate operates in Afghanistan, tweeted that the attack was perpetrated by the, quote, terrorist Taliban, their current or former allies, or their ideological twins, end quote, insinuating any terrorist attack is basically Taliban, and if it's not, it might as well be the Taliban. Government spokesman Sadiq Siddiqui made this insinuation explicit. He said the Taliban, quote, are behind all the violence and crimes in this country. This country is so screwed up, man. First Vice President Saleh also said, quote, evidence shows that the Taliban are in a celebratory mood for massacring Shiites in a maternity hospital in Kabul. End quote. And chided people who believed ISIS did it by calling out, quote, some for expecting their lies and accusing the fictional, end quote, ISIS. It's an urban legend that never happened. Now, there is, there is like a weird kernel of truth to the Afghanistan claim that terrorism in the country is from Taliban or affiliates of the Taliban because virtually all Afghani ISIS members are Taliban defectors. So in a way, it's right when he said it's either to the Taliban or a Taliban affiliate or their ideological twin. Those things are true for ISIS and Afghanistan. However, that glosses over the fact that they have completely different motives and they're constantly fighting with each other. ISIS in Afghanistan is called ISIL-KP or ISK. The full name is the ISIS is er, sorry, the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, Khorasan province. Khorasan province is the name of an Iranian province, but it's also a historical name for the northeast part of the Persian Empire, which included much of Afghanistan. 
ISK formed in 2014 when ISIS sent representatives to meet members of the Pakistan Taliban. And then in the next few months, ISK formed in eastern Afghanistan and northern Pakistan. And by twenty by early 2015, they released a statement pledging allegiance to al-Baghdadi and ISIS. ISK primarily recruits at madrasas, which are like colleges of Islamic learning. They recruit both lecturers and students. So this is also the support base of the Taliban. Although Taliban seems to have at least a little more appeal to commoners, um, but either way, the the point of bringing this up is the class characteristic of Islamic groups isn't highlighted much. ISK and ISIS generally is constituted largely by middle class and upper middle class reactionaries contradictory to the western media portrayal of isis as a bunch of goat farmers for example al-baghdadi had a phd and one of his right-hand men was a former physics professor isis began recruiting disgruntled taliban members more actively leading the taliban leader to demand al-baghdadi stops but by late 2015, there was a gun battle between Taliban and ISIS that resulted in about 100 deaths, and there have been several battles since then. So you up for a sparring match? The U.S. has labeled ISIS in Afghanistan as a terrorist organization, and so has India, but no other country has. The tenuous truce that Trump made with the Taliban recently involved in an agreement to stop drone striking the Taliban and to focus on ISIS in Afghanistan instead. But again, it seems like the group is a little hard to make sense of as many officials don't even believe it exists. And it also seems a lot more um, secretive, small, hidden and obscure than a lot of ISIS groups, especially at their heights. Love, football on TV, shots of Gina Lee, hanging with my friends and twins. And we are going to close out this episode with a deep dive into the story of the Makuto Bay Raid in Venezuela. An American private military company called Silver Corps USA attempted a raid against Venezuela with Venezuelan dissidents and ex-military who live in Colombia. The raid failed, basically immediately, with eight dissidents killed and 17 people captured, including two American mercenaries. Venezuelan authorities detained two U.S. citizens for a failed attempted raid of the country. The mercenaries worked with a French-Canadian and U.S. military veteran named Jordan Goudreau in a private military company that was called Silver Corps, like I said. 
They were involved in a plot that Maduro said was coordinated with the U.S. government to enter Venezuela by boat from Colombia, which they did. The first boat arrived before the second, and the people on the first boat engaged in gunfire, which is when most or all of the dissidents were killed. The second boat was then intercepted at sea. The raid was planned by, like I said, Silver Corps USA founder Jordan Goudreau and a former Venezuelan major general named Cliver Alcala Cardones, who I'll call Alcala throughout the rest of this segment. Um, he won't come up for a minute, but until a little bit later, but he was major general until he defected in 2013 and went to Colombia to bring together other defectors who fled the Bolivarian revolution. So we'll get back to Alcala in a minute, but I'm going to focus on Goudreau for now. Jordan Goudreau served in the Canadian armed forces starting around 1998 then he moved to Washington, D.C. and enlisted in the United States Army a few months before 9-11. Today, uh, there was a terrorist attack, okay? He founded Silver Corps USA in 2018 and has provided security at rallies for Donald Trump. So many great movies. In February 2019, Silver Corps provided security services at Venezuela A Live, the concert funded by the capitalist D-bag Richard Branson. What do you want, Breton Trash? On the Tienditas Bridge, which connects Colombia and Venezuela. Keith Schiller, who's Donald Trump's longtime director of security, brought Goudreau to a fundraising event in D.C. about security in Venezuela. Guaido's director of humanitarian aid was also there. The director of humanitarian aid later introduced Goudreau to the former Major General Alcala, mentioned earlier at a conference in Bogota. Now, I just, I'm reading, reading stuff for a little bit, but I just want to interject now. People have been focusing on how Goudreau's kind of a dipshit, and he is. I mean, it's funny how he's a French-Canadian, too. Um, I mean, it's just sad. It's so sad when Canadians become patriotic Americans. It's like, that's embarrassing, bro. You were from the better country, and then you moved here to join our freaking imperialist military. I bring this up a lot, but about 30,000 U.S. soldiers left the United, or um, went to uh, Canada to jo- dodge the draft during the uh, Vietnam War, and conversely, 30,000 Canadians volunteered for the U.S. military during the Vietnam War. That is so embarrassing, bro. Um, But yeah, so people have been focusing on Goudreau, because he is kind of a dipshit, but this guy, Major General Alcala, I think he's even more of a dipshit, honestly, and I'll get into that, but... uh, By May 2019, Keith Schiller and Goudreau met with Guaido officials, Guaido, Juan Guaido officials in Miami, 
where Goudreau suggested providing security for Guaido officials. At this point, Schiller and presumably the entire Trump campaign supposedly broke off ties to Goudreau. So the Trump campaign is claiming, claiming the last they interacted with um, Goudreau or Silvercore about anything related to Venezuela was May of 2019. That might be true, but I'm also, I mean, there was certainly U.S. money of reaching this group, whether directly or indirectly. I mean, they had a ton of weaponry. The U.S. gives a ton of money to Juan Guaido, and we know Guaido was giving Silvercore a bunch of money, so it's not really the end of U.S. involvement, but maybe it is the, the end of direct, formal, person-to-person involvement. So, meanwhile, while Goudreau was doing that with the U.S. government, Major General Alcala met with Colombian intelligence and asked for permission to invade Venezuela. He told them Goudreau is a former CIA agent. Then Colombia asked CIA contacts in Bogota, and they confirmed Goudreau wasn't a CIA agent, never was, and so Colombia told Alcala to basically fuck off because they assumed he was talking out of his ass. By June 2019, a retired U.S. Navy SEAL named Ephraim Matos met with Major General Alcala and his military and saw they were supplied with necessary materials. They had a ton of weaponry. He was like surveying what weaponry they had and what supplies they had. All of that. Uh, however, Matos claims that the Venezuelan dissidents were under the impression they were being helped by the U.S. government directly. So maybe Goudreau and or Alcala was telling them that, but that wasn't really true. It's a made-up tale. By August 2019, Maduro was fully aware of the plan and made it public. So that was a long time ago Maduro knew about this. Meanwhile, that same month, August 2019, Guaido and his strategist, a little worm-like man named J.J. Rendon, formed the, quote, Strategic Committee as a committee to overthrow Maduro. J.J. Rendon reached out to groups about overthrowing Maduro at this time and eventually settled on Goudreau and Silvercore. So, fast forward a little bit, because that, that's some backstory, but this is where it gets interesting. And this is part of the story that not many people are highlighting. The U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, also known as the DEA, told Colombia about a shipment of guns and military equipment because the DEA believed the equipment was being shipped to leftist guerrillas or leftist groups. They probably meant FARC, um, which is like the left-wing group of Colombia, left-wing militia. However, the shipment was headed to the Venezuelan dissidents led by Alcala and Silvercourt. The DEA thought these weapons, they didn't even know anything about this guy, but it is weird that the DEA knows so much about what's being shipped and why and 
where they think it's going to. I mean, it makes sense, but it, it is a little, like, alarming, I guess. Um, so three days after this incident, two things happen. The first is that Donald Trump declared Maduro a narco-terrorist and put a bounty on his head. So this was likely a reaction to the weaponry that the DEA thought was going to leftist groups when it was really going to like a US affiliated militia. And the second thing that happened on the same day is Alcalo announced his responsibility for a military intervention against Maduro and claimed he signed an agreement to do so with the U.S., Colombia, and Guaido. The U.S. really didn't like this and uh, extradited Alcala to the U.S. on drug trafficking charges right away. The Maduro administration claimed Alcala was a U.S. agent and the U.S. government used narco-terrorism charges as an excuse to shut him up. Now, Alcala may not formally be a USA agent, but he was definitely extradited to shut him up. Shut up, bitch! In the aftermath of the raid, Maduro aired an interrogation of Luke Denman, one of the arrested American mercenaries, on TV. In it, Denman claims the plan was to seize Simone Bolivar Airport, then fly Maduro to the U.S. A document was revealed to show that both Jordan Goudreau and Juan Guaido signed the same document, showing a higher level of cooperation between the, the two groups than they lead us to believe. Now, let's get into reactions, because I don't have much more to say about this story, but... Domestically, in Venezuela, the reaction has been universally negative. Not only did the Maduro administration denounce it, obviously, but most of the opposition to Maduro did too. Several opposition officials insisted that Guaido fire anyone who may be connected to the group, and said that using mercenaries to overthrow the government makes the opposition look bad, which, I mean, it does. J.J. Rendon, the little twerp that I mentioned earlier, resigned, as well as one other guy, and they were both patsies slash fall guys to take the blame for something much bigger than them. The U.S. has denied any connection to the attempted raid, and I think the U.S. wasn't involved in any of the technical military type stuff, but if they, they surely were involved indirectly. I don't know what more to say about that. And Colombia, as well as Guaido and his cronies, funny enough, claim that the attack was fake and staged by Maduro as a sort of self-coup to justify his being in power. Uh, which is just, that's a hilarious explanation. Hilariously untrue. False flag operations, if you go through history, happen all the time before these wars. But, uh... That about wraps up this episode. I baked you a pie. Oh boy, what flavor! Pie, pie, pie. Dad, I'm hungry. Pie, hungry, I'm bad. Why did you name me this way? Why, why, why?
Uh, like I said, there was no state of the state this episode because... I just didn't have much to say, and there are a lot of news stories I wanted to talk about. Um, But, thank you for listening to The Society Show. We actually have a new Twitter account that I haven't used much yet, but by the time this episode is up and listenable... The Twitter account should be more set up better. It is at society underscore show. So follow that on Twitter if you're interested. You can also follow me personally on Twitter at Christian is cool. Is is spelled I-Z at Christian I-Z cool. And you should also check out the blog that's associated with this podcast, undergroundmall.xyz. I haven't been updating the blog as much lately, because with quarantine, I just it's harder to find the time, I guess. I have so much things I need to do, so... But, the blog does have a lot of useful writing. It has a ton of old writing. And it will be updated in the future. And it also contains all the show notes for every episode of the show. So, uh, yeah, be sure to check it out. And uh, thank you for listening to The Society Show. Society. Till next time, take care of yourself and each other. On the next Arrested Development. And Senator Warren engaged in lesbian sex with my friend from high school using a lime green strap on dildo. <laughs> so I can remember. As, as, I'm sorry. I'm What's sorry. funny? So I wrote back, hey, Donald Trump, the science is on my side, and I'd like to see how your hair would fare in a blizzard. Our government going down to Nicaragua and infecting hundreds of people with syphilis to see if penicillin worked. I work for a living, and I mean real work, not writing down gobbledygook. Is Elizabeth Warren a dom, a sub, or like a switch? She's very, um, she's more of a dominatrix, if you understand.